My name is Andrew, and I, as always, uh, this morning, we're going to get into the Word of God. So I invite you to take out a Bible and open a Bible up. We are going to continue our series in Luke-Acts this morning. And I invite you to open your Bible to Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 31 through verse 44. And if you're not familiar with how to use a Bible, you can use one of the Blue Pew Bibles, and you can find our passage on page 835. We're going to have some notes on the screen, and feel free to take notes uh, for yourself, but do have uh, the Bible open before you as well so that you can engage and dig in and learn for yourself. We're going to now read our passage, Luke 4, verses 31 to 44. Then he, Jesus, went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath he taught the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon, an impure spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, go away, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. All the people were amazed and said to each other, what words these are. With authority and power, he gives orders to impure spirits and they come out. And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. At sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness, and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people, shouting, You are the Son of God! But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Messiah. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving. But he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns also, because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Why don't we offer prayer and then we'll dig in. Holy Spirit, please come and illuminate our minds with the words of these texts which you have inspired. Would you speak to us of Jesus? Would you show him to us and would you cause us to live uh, in the realities that, that we see in this passage as never before? Would you transform us, bring us into what you are doing here? We hold ourselves before you and invite you to do this work in Jesus' name. Amen. Authority. How do you feel when you hear that word? Authority. 
since this past September, our family has adopted a new routine. Our daughter Zoe is five, and that means she's in school. And so our routine now during the week begins with our kids getting up a bit too early, uh, a bit of caffeine, and then this, this mad scramble to get Zoe and the lucky parent who gets to take her to school out the door. We've got to get them out the door on time for school. And I had the honor this past Thursday uh, to do that. And so we get into our van and we're, we're driving down the street and I notice that it's crunch time, okay? Like school's about to start and it's crunch time and there's about, seems like a thousand other parents uh, who are also in the same boat as I am. It's crunch time, gotta get my kid to school. Adding to this chaos is the fact that it's winter and so the streets are about like five feet narrower <laughs> and so uh, when you pull up to our school, there's just, it's just chaos. Uh, there's one road that passes along our school. And of course, there's this stretch of prime parking real estate right in front of the school. And it's a no parking zone. Right? And I, I have to confess, I might have used... Uh, that zone for my selfish purposes in the past. Uh, and, and so Thursday morning, I pull up and, and I stop, uh, put the van into park in this no parking zone, and then someone comes and taps on my window. And it's not just any someone, it's the principal of the school. And, you know, she tells me, like, move along, bud, right? Like, you can't park here. And she is using her authority in a just way, right? She's using her authority well. She's telling me to move along. I'm doing something I shouldn't do. It's just. But how am I feeling in that moment? I'm frazzled. I feel like I'm being robbed. Right? Doesn't the principal know what I've been through to get here? Like doesn't, like, doesn't she see how convenient it would be if I could just leave the van there for 30 seconds? 30 seconds. I could just book it, carry Zoe, get her to the door, book it back. But no, I've got to move on. And my response to authority in that moment is completely self-centered, isn't it? And in moments like that, you know, maybe for you it was you got a speeding ticket and you were offended at the fact that you were given a speeding ticket. And in moments like that, we feel like our freedom is being, res being restricted, right? We're being told what to do or, or what not to do and we don't like it and we feel kind of robbed. So what's your experience? How do you respond to authority in your life? Maybe authority is problematic for you because you've just seen it abused so many times. Abuse, violence, scandals, murder, genocides. These all ride on the coattails of authority gone wrong. CEOs, presidents, doctors, Bosses, coaches, teachers, pastors, priests, parents, siblings. Every conceivable position of authority has this dark side to it. Th this potential for power to be used in evil and selfish and, and oppressive ways, in hurtful ways. And I'm sure there are plenty of examples that come to our minds this morning uh, from the news headlines this past week. Or, or maybe examples from your home country that you experienced firsthand for yourself. All of this can leave that word authority with a bad taste in our mouths, can't it? 
But I think on some level, we all desire, we all have a longing for authority and power to be used for the good. And in our passage today, Luke is actually putting Jesus forward as one with authority, as a figure with authority. And Luke is also showing us how Jesus uses his authority, what his authority is for. If you were here three weeks ago, you remember that just before this story in Luke, Jesus was in his hometown in Nazareth. And, and he went to the religious gathering of his people on the Sabbath and, and he began to teach them. And at first the people are amazed, but, but then they start to doubt his authority, right? They question his right to say what he's saying. And they reject him. And in the end, they're ready to throw him off a cliff. So this morning, Jesus journeys from Nazareth, right? Over here in the sticks. And he journeys the 50 kilometers to Capernaum a slightly larger town, not, not a huge city by any means, but a bigger town bustling with trade and fishermen and tax collectors and soldiers. Uh, and true to form, he goes into the synagogue on uh, their Sabbath day. And he starts to teach them. And notice how people respond to his teaching in verse 32. It says that they were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. And then again, that word authority is repeated in verse 36. Again, almost like repeating this idea, and, and when writers repeat ideas, it's good for us to, to listen up. It says, all the people, in verse 36, were amazed and said to each other, what is this teaching? With authority and power, he gives orders to evil spirits, and they come out. What our passage is about today is authority. Jesus has it, and, and people can see it. it. It's tangible. Authority means that you have the right to do something or to say something, to, to make decisions, and to take control of a situation, and to steer that situation towards a certain end that you have in mind. And the people in Capernaum, they see something different about Jesus, don't they? They see something different, that he's not teaching like they're there are other Jewish teachers. New Testament scholar William Barclay comments, and he says this. He says, when rabbis taught, they supported every statement with quotations. Right? They're, they're referencing a higher authority. So they would always say, there is a saying that, or Rabbi so-and-so said. They always appealed to authority. He says, when the prophets spoke, they said, thus saith the Lord. Theirs was a delegated authority. When Jesus spoke, he said, I say to you. He needed no authorities to betray him. He was not a, his was not a delegated authority. He was, get this, authority incarnate. Here was a man who spoke as one who knew. That's what we see here. His authority wasn't delegated. And if you fast forward in, in the story of the Gospels and you skip over to the book of Matthew, to that famous passage known as the Great Commission, Jesus says this, like a breathtaking statement, all authority has been given to me. And then he delegates authority. 
to his disciples. Go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. For us in this room who are followers of Jesus, the authority we have is that delegated authority. We pray in the name of Jesus, right? We ask in the name of Jesus. It comes to us as a gift that proceeds from him, but Jesus' authority isn't like that. It's in himself. He didn't need to call on a higher authority to teach or to heal. He just says the word. And people and spirits and sickness obey him. He was authority incarnate, as Barclay wonderfully puts it. So let's keep going and, and let's see this in action. In verse 33, something dramatic happens while Jesus is teaching in the gathering. He's in the synagogue and a man who has a demon, and Luke clarifies that this is an unclean spirit, as in a spirit from the dark side. And, and this man stands up and he starts shouting and making a scene. Go away, what do you want with us, Jesus of, Na of Nazareth? So while the people are amazed at his authority, the demon inside this man is provoked, right? Kind of like germs sensing the approach of bleach. They, they know the jig is up. Th this demon knows that, that, that the coming of this one, Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy One of God, means that him and his friends are in big trouble. And so Jesus rebukes the spirit and commands it to come out, and it does. It submits to Jesus even though it doesn't want to. Notice that this is the first deed of power in Luke's gospel. Until now, Jesus has been exclusively teaching and preaching. But let's not make the mistake of separating his teaching from his healing or his deeds. They go together. Luke and the gospel writers always keep them together. They go together. I want us to recall Jesus' manifesto, his uh, mission statement. Just if you rewind a few verses, skip over to the next page, uh, chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. Jesus is at Nazareth, and, and this is the statement, what he says. This is, this is what I'm here to do. He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, to the release to the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, th this manifesto connects his words and his deeds and makes them inseparable. So that the forgiveness and, and, and release that Jesus announces with his words is what he then moves to accomplish with his deeds. Do you follow that? So, so what he's speaking, he's now moving to accomplish. And he has authority to do both. Here's how they fit with one another. The deeds accomplish the reality of his words. The deeds bring the reality of his words into people's experience, into their life. So in verse 38, Jesus goes to the house of someone named Simon, who will be an important character in Luke and Acts. And Simon's mother-in-law is suffering from a high fever. And the Greek word there for suffering actually carries the nuance of being bound or held by something. Okay? 
And so this woman, in, in the same way that the man was bound by an unclean spirit, this woman is bound by her fever. And what Jesus does is he rebukes the fever. Notice that wording, that's interesting. He rebukes the fever and it leaves her. He brings her the freedom and release that, that he's been teaching and preaching. You see that? His deeds accomplish the reality he is announcing. And conversely, his words explain the significance of his deeds. What does it mean that Jesus is now going around driving out demons and healing people? Is he just, you know, kind of an itinerant miracle worker who can kind of come and enhance your life, deal with your problems? It's not enough to know that he does great deeds. We need to know their meaning. We need to know the significance. And we need Jesus to tell us what they mean. And luckily for us, he does. Look at verse 43. In verse 43, the Capernaumites, I think that's, I can say that, Capernaumites, yeah. They tried to get him to stay, okay? They're like, man, this Jesus, he's got authority. They're amazed, please stay. But he says this to them. He says, I must proclaim the good news or the gospel. That's what gospel means, good news. I must proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that's why I was sent. Pause. Look at this verse. This is important. Luke is packing a ton of stuff into this small verse. And here's what he's doing. Luke is saying that what Jesus has been doing up to this point, you know, in Nazareth, his teaching and preaching, in Capernaum, his teaching and his great deeds, all of this is about this thing that Jesus calls the kingdom of God. His manifesto about proclaiming good news and release and recovery and freedom, that's about the kingdom of God. His teaching and preaching, it's about the kingdom. His deeds, they are about the kingdom. The kingdom of God is really important. And this is the first time we hear it in Luke. Matthew and Mark both place it very much at the beginning of Jesus' words, but here we have it, but it's gonna come up over and over again, 38 times in Luke and Acts, the kingdom of God. And this is the answer to the question. What do his deeds mean? What does it mean that he's now doing these things? It means that Jesus is bringing the kingdom of God it means that he is bringing this kingdom into our experience and into history. That's what Jesus is here to do. He's not just here to like, enhance people's lives so that they can go on living in their own kingdom. He's here to bring the kingdom and to bring people into that kingdom. And the presence of the kingdom of God, what we see in Jesus' deeds, the presence of that kingdom means that the powers of evil are confronted and they're pushed back. And that the people who are bound by those powers are liberated and they're set free. And so some of us might be here this morning, you might have heard that phrase, kingdom of God, maybe you've been in church a long time and you're wondering, okay, but like what is that? It, it seems kind of intangible. I'm gonna set this up a bit, but 
just keep in mind that Luke has just introduced this phrase and, and he's going to be unpacking it as we go forward. In, in Jesus' teaching, he's going to show us what it looks like to live in this kingdom. He's going to show us the ethics of this kingdom, what this kingdom values. But just think about that word kingdom. What's a kingdom? It's a place, or it's a sphere where somebody, usually we call them a king, has authority, right? That, that person has authority to rule and order things as they want. It's the sphere where the will of that king is carried out. That's what a kingdom is. And as we do, zoom out, okay, do, do a little zoom out with me here. And, and, and when we look and think about the whole storyline of the Bible, who's the king of the world? This is the Sunday school answer. <laughs> Jesus, God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God made it and he ordered it towards certain ends. The end that life of all kinds, that human life, animal life, and plant life would flourish and people would live in fellowship with their creator and to be his reflection in, in the temple of creation. Partnering with him in the work of making the earth a fruitful place. That's, that's what he made the earth for. And what we see here now in, in Jesus announcing and bringing the kingdom is God taking back his creation, which fell into ruins when we rebelled against him. The kingdom of God is God taking back the sinful and broken people that he made so that under his love, under his mercy and his rule, we might become the fullness of what God made us to be. The kingdom of God, brothers and sisters, is all about the restoration of human life in every aspect. So let's zoom back into our passage. What's going on here is huge. In Jesus, uh, the uh, central hinge point of human history has reached its climax, and he's coming to bring people back under the reign of God. That's what his deeds mean. That's the reality they are manifesting. So this morning, we need to ask the question as we start to think and work out, okay, how does this relate to our own lives? What's our response going to be? How are we going to respond to Jesus' authority? We're seeing Jesus use power and authority in the most beautiful and loving way, right? Right? He's not using his authority to squash people, to put them down, and to lift himself up. He's using his authority to liberate people. But we still have obstacles to authority, don't we? We still have obstacles. The first obstacle is our experience. How we've seen authority misused to oppress people. And maybe you've been on the receiving end of that. And if that's you, all, all you need to do this morning is to sit and, and see how this Jesus uses his authority. To, to see how he even redefines what power and authority are in his life and in his death. In Philippians 2, there's this groundbreaking 
really shocking statement about Jesus, who, who is God. And it's this, this picture of how Jesus uses his authority for our good to liberate us. It's talking, Paul is talking about Jesus and he says, Jesus, who being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, right? Didn't consider his equality and power and authority something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So just think about that, what Jesus does with his power. He goes to the grave for you and and for me. He uses his authority to bring liberation in the ultimate sense, to free us, yes, from sickness, sin, and evil powers, but through his death to free us from death, right? So you might be here this morning feeling really jaded about authority, but, but you gotta hear this. And I just wanna quote Paul Karsgaard. He, he made this amazing insight when we were studying this passage together a couple weeks ago. Just hear this that the authority that hurt you so badly in your life is the very authority that Jesus comes against in his authority to free you from. Did you get that? That the authority that hurt you so bad, that's the authority that Jesus comes against in his authority to liberate you from. So just think on Jesus and, and, and consider, consider the possibility of trusting his authority. But we have another obstacle, and it's related to my story about wanting to get that parking spot. (laughs) And it's that the self-centered response that that we often feel, it's a mistrust. It's it's the desire to want to be our own authority. And, And that feeling that authority is there really to just rob me of my freedom. And guess what? That attitude and that mistrust of authority is, is not only encouraged, but it's celebrated in our culture. Is it not? We need to understand our cultural moment if we are gonna follow Jesus faithfully in this area. We live in what many people have called a post-Christian culture. Maybe you've heard that term before. But what that means is that Christendom or a society where Christianity is at the center, that's done, right? Christianity has been moved off to the sides, and if that's news for you, this has been the case for like a couple decades. So let's acknowledge the reality. We live in a post-Christian country and continent. But what this means is that our culture has been deeply shaped by the Christian faith. So there's many values Uh, that are kingdom values, values that Christianity has taught that have actually made their way into the culture. So things like peace, justice, equality, human dignity, human rights, these are all coming from the scriptures. And and so many people in in our culture today uh, don't even know that. But here's the thing. A post-Christian culture loves much of what Christianity has given us, like those values but it rejects the authority of Jesus. 
A post-Christian culture wants the peace, right? Wants the vision of justice and equality and flourishing that the kingdom offers, but it doesn't acknowledge Jesus as the way that that vision is, is gonna happen, right? Mark Sayers is a pastor and a cultural commentator, and he puts it this way. He says that the post-Christian West wants the kingdom without the king, okay? It wants the kingdom without the king. And so the dominant posture of all our culture towards authority is what? It's suspicion. It's mistrust. It's deconstructive. And that's not all 100% bad, right? Like transparency and accountability, good things, right? But external authority is almost always viewed as a bad thing, and here's why. Here's why. Come, I know this is kind of nerdy, uh, but just c- come with me on this. The locus or the location of, of authority has changed, right? So, so the location of, of who gets to make the call on morality and how to live and, and what the point of life is has changed from God or, or some higher being, and, and it's been pulled and, and given to the self, the individual, right? And so most people operate with the understanding uh, that they are the, uh, in charge of constructing their, their morals, of determining what their life is about, and determining the goal of their life, right? To define for yourself what's right and what's wrong and what works for you. Can we affirm this? Do, do you see this in culture? So, if you want to confuse and bewilder your friends or colleagues, just start talking about how Jesus has authority over your life and over the world. They will look at you like you're from another planet. Why am I telling you this? Because this is the air we breathe. This is the air we breathe, it's the water we swim in. When we're making our way to school, we're making our way to work, when we're at school, and when we're at work. It's, it's what's coming at us uh, through the radio, if you still listen to radio anymore. Um, it, it's what's coming to you through the notifications on your phone. It, it's just everywhere. And as we seek to follow Jesus and be faithful to him in this cultural moment, we've we got to know what we're up against. And, and it's good to pause and to take inventory and, and to wonder, has this has this seeped into my view of God and myself? You know, have I bought the narrative uh, that true freedom lies in me being my own master? That, that true freedom lies in me taking authority over myself and over my life? Have, have I bought that narrative? Am I living in ways that are pushing Jesus out from the center of my life? And here's the thing. It's a total sham. The, the way to true liberation and true freedom is through Christ. If you take authority over your life and you say that's, you know, when I am the center, when I am the master, that's when I'll be free. That's just gonna lead to slavery. It's just gonna lead to slavery to your own appetites. Uh, it's gonna lead to slavery to your own lostness and, and confusion and your lack of self-control. 
we need to turn back to Jesus. And I think, as we think about what it means to turn back to Jesus, we can take some cues from Capernaum and how they responded to Jesus and his authority. But first, as we look at Capernaum's response, first just notice that it's not about their response first. It's about the fact that Jesus comes to them, right? Jesus comes to them and invites them into a new reality, the reality of the kingdom. Now their response. They're amazed at Jesus and his authority. Okay, now let's be careful here. They're not just amazed, but they allow their amazement, their curiosity, the intrigue that Jesus arouses in them. They allow that to bring them to him, right? They don't start uh, trying to explain Jesus or getting to the bottom of of how and why he can say the things he's saying and do the things he's doing. They, They receive him as he comes. They're amazed and they let that amazement bring him bring them to Jesus. Secondly, they ask for Jesus' help, right? With Simon's mother-in-law. They come to Jesus and they ask him to help her. And we need to ask too, for ourselves, for our neighbors, uh, for others. And asking him, the very deed of asking him for help is actually a way of stepping out in trust. Because you only ask for help from someone you trust. Thirdly, they bring their need to Jesus. Right? They bring the sick. When at sunset, the text says, so what's going on there on the Sabbath is like, okay, the Sabbath is over, the sun has set, now we can pick people up and do the work and bring them to Jesus. They bring people to Jesus. They bring the needs of others before him with expectancy. That's a way of trusting his authority. And lastly, they seek Jesus. So at sunrise, right? Notice Jesus has just pulled an all-nighter. It's a long day. At sunrise, the people are looking for him when Jesus goes to get away at a solitary place, and they try to make him stay. Now, Jesus has to say that hard word to them. You know, this is why I came. I can't just stay here for you. I've got to go. But their desire for him to stay isn't bad. Their seeking of him isn't bad. That's not wrong. I'm sure Jesus would rather that than what happened at Nazareth. So maybe there's a step that you can take to to begin to seek Jesus more intentionally. It's Lent. This might be a good window of opportunity as we head, uh, prepare for Good Friday and Easter morning to adopt a practice that will help you to seek him. To adopt a practice with, with your spouse or with a friend that will help you seek him together. And I'm not saying this is a four-step formula to get blessing. Not at all. Oh my goodness. Those of you who know me, no. I would never say that. I'm saying that these are ways that we can respond that fosters trust in his liberating authority. Ways that we can put ourselves under his care. Okay, we're going to land the plane soon. But just one last thing. It's that for Jesus to have authority, it means that we trust that he sees the whole picture, right? It's often the case. I mean, if you're someone at work, uh, 
or, or in your field who has authority, it's often the case that when you're in a position of authority, you more, know more that's going on th than the people who, who you're leading, right? You, you, have a, you have the bigger picture in mind. You know what's going on. Well, if that's true of like humans and human authority, that is like way more true of God. <laughs> I think there are things that God knows that, that we just don't. And so as we trust his authority, um, we need to trust that he sees the whole picture and knows what we need. Because here's the thing, right? I have my own picture of what liberation looks like. You know, ah, it's more money. It, it's no debt. It, it's perfect health. It's a spacious apartment with big windows and exposed brick walls. Like, that is liberation. Hold on. Not so fast. What if the liberation that Jesus has in mind for you and for me isn't so much about our outward circumstances, but it's about being liberated in the core of who we are, right? In, in our heart, in our soul, in our mind, and in our bodies. What if our liberation isn't about new circumstances, but becoming a new kind of human, living in a new kind of kingdom? I just want to say this morning, the purpose of, of Jesus uh, exercising his, uh, his authority to liberate us is so that we would be made into his image. The purpose of liberation is to be made into his image, that we would be free from all the things that would prevent the life of Jesus from being formed in us, so that we can become those new humans patterned after the new human. So how are we going to respond? At the end of the, or sorry, in the first movie of The Lord of the Rings, there's this amazing scene. So Bilbo Baggins, yes, please come with me. <laughs> Bilbo Baggins is a hobbit and he is bound. He's got this gold ring uh, that he's had for years and years and it's prolonged his life and, and, and it has bound him. He, he, he's attached to it. It's, it's it's a bad thing in his life. And Gandalf confronts him. He's this wizard, and he wants Bilbo to be free. And so he's encouraging Bilbo to, to let the ring go, okay? And Bilbo has this, that self-centered reaction to Gandalf's authority, and he shouts at Gandalf, you want it for yourself. And then Gandalf flexes his authority, right? If you remember the scene from the movie, it's like a storm comes into the room. Gandalf's voice takes on this cavernous, booming quality. His frame grows, and the room starts to like flex and stress under the power of his expanding presence. The walls are groaning. He reveals his authority to Bilbo. He's reminding Bilbo who he is. And then the room goes back to normal. And Gandalf's expression shifts from this authority to this kind and delighted expression in Bilbo. And he says, I'm not trying to rob you. I'm trying to help you. All your long years we've been friends. Trust me, as you once did. Let it go. I think that's the invitation that Jesus holds out to us this morning. As much as we have this tendency to see authority as this thing that robs us, he's inviting us to push through that and trust him.
He's not trying to rob us. He doesn't want anything from you. He just wants you. He just wants you in his kingdom, liberated to discover the purpose that you were made for, free to worship him and live in his presence and to find abundant life. Amen? Amen. Let's worship.